With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a podcast on money, investing, the economy, and why they matter. I'm your host, David Stein. This is episode six. It's titled, Why Should We Even Care About the Economy? And, and I, I titled it that because this might surprise you, but most people really could care less about the economy. They, they, for example, this morning, the news was in the U.S., the economy contracted 1%. And, and if you get into the, the Twitter sphere, at least a lot of people I follow were all commenting on it, thinking, oh, this is good, this is bad, Here's, the market didn't react to it. But the average person could care less. In fact, you might, you might not care at all. But what I want to, to talk about today and try to put it as simple as possible, what, what is the economy? Why should we care? And I want to start by sharing an experience. I, as I mentioned in Episode 5, I was down in Mexico in January. And I, I've been to Mexico off and on maybe a dozen times the past 20 or 30 years. And I was taking my friend, as I mentioned, we were, going down, we were going down there to fish. His dream was to bone fish along the Caribbean coast. But we went inland, and, and one of the places we went was Chichen Itza. And Chichen Itza is the, the renowned Mayan ruins from, that were built, I believe, 800 to 1000 AD. You have a, El Castillo, and it is a wonderful place. But it's also an interesting place because Chichen Itza was, for many years, privately owned. It was sort of this gentleman had his own private Mayan ruins. And he would allow vendors to come in. And and I remember back in in the mid-'80s going there, and there were a few vendors kind of under the trees, and they were selling handicraft. These were were native Mayans, generally speaking, and they they were selling blankets and, and wood carvings that they had done and and just all, all kinds of, of interesting handicrafts. Now when you go to Chichen Itza, a couple things. One, the private owner, whose name I don't remember, essentially sold it back or sold it to the government. But then as you walk along the the paths of the ruins, literally on both sides there is table after table of vendors selling everything. A lot of it looks the same, but I mean, it's really, really cool stuff, but it's hard to distinguish. And, and when you think about that, there's all these things being made. And, and I saw one woman who was, was of Mayan descent. She was wearing the traditional epil, which is a, a, a white dress, and it's embroidered with all these co- colorful flowers. And she had a, a handful of handkerchiefs that she had embroidered that said, well, it said, I think, memories of, of Chichen Itza. And, and I speak a, a little bit of Spanish. I, I used to speak much better, but enough to communicate. And I, I started talking to her, and, and, and I bought one handkerchief for 10 pesos. And, and later on, I was walking, and, and I 
saw another woman who had actually had a stand and, and there was a backpack that, that caught my eye. It was pink, it was pretty, and I started talking to this woman and, and I didn't really want to buy it and I thought about it and I hemmed it all and she started talking about, I need, I need money to buy uniforms for my children, for, stu- for students, the children in, in Mexico wear uniforms to school. And she tried to control me into buying this and how unique it is. She talked about the families that, the local families that work so hard making this backpack. And she finally convinced me to, to buy the backpack. And, and I brought it home to my daughter, and she, she thought that was the coolest thing, cool backpack. A couple weeks later at the mall in, in Idaho where I live, and there was a store with the exact same backpack in it, different color, but the exact same backpack. And I thought, oh my, maybe it wasn't a handicraft after all. Maybe it was mass produced in, in some factory somewhere else overseas. But I looked at it and, and it appeared, and I talked to the owner of the store, and it appeared to be the, the same family that made backpacks, but now they were exporting it to, to the United States. Now, what does that have to do with the economy? An economy is a group of people producing things. So within Chichen Itza, you have an economy. The, the vendors that decided to make backpacks and then sell them, the vendors, that, the, the, the woman that made handkerchiefs, she would have bought the cloth to make the handkerchiefs. Somebody else would have, would have grown the cotton. But when we measure the economy, all we're really measuring is the output. What were the, what is the value, the value in pesos or the value in dollars of the goods produced and the services rendered? And so when we think of economy, economy is life. It's what people are doing for a living to produce. It's their handicrafts. It, it's the factory making things. When the government, statistical agencies, in, in the U.S. it's the Bureau of Economic Analysis, Every quarter they, they come out with these releases and then they revise them. But what they're trying to estimate is, the bottom line is, how much output was produced? And was the amount of output produced greater than the previous quarter or less? In the first quarter within the United States, the amount of output produced was less than it was in the fourth quarter. And, and you go back to the example of Chichen Itza, those vendors there that are making these handicrafts are deciding whether they're going to produce, how much they're going to produce, how much output they're going to create based on whether they think they're going to sell or not. But the economy is not, what's, is not the amount bought. It's not the amount sold. At the end of the day, I mean, that's part of the economy, but in terms of how it's measured, it's just the output. And, and that's what you need, to, you need to come away with when they say, well, the economy shrank or the economy or grew. All the government is saying is that output increased. Who decides how much output's produced? Well, people do, businesses do, and they, they do that based on whether they think they're going to sell it or not. And, and so when we measure the economy, it, it's important because if they, decide, if they think they're going to sell it, then they'll produce it and they might hire people to help them produce it. And, and by and large, that's why when the economy grows, it's because more output is being produced. And if more output is being produced, hopefully that output is being sold. So the, the owner will have 
more income that he can go buy something else that somebody else is producing or the service that somebody else is providing. That's how the economy is. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't really measure the volume of things produced, but it's the value. So if I'm a tailor and, I'm, and I make suits, I can make $1,000 suit and work for a month, or I could make two $500 suits and, and spend two weeks on each suit. In terms of the, the economic value or output, the dollar value is the same, and measuring the growth of the economy would have been the same, even though, in the one example, I produced more goods and used more resources, more material, the amount of output was the same. And that, that's an important thing when we talk about the economy, because, frankly, that we have a real challenge in, in terms of resources in the world. They're constrained in terms of the amount of resources that there are. And we've gotten into a seriously bad habit of producing more and more cheaper things. In other words, when you look at, for, for example, clothes, you can you can buy clothes, you can buy a shirt. I went, went to Walmart. I didn't buy. I don't buy shirts at Walmart, but I went to Walmart several weeks ago to see what was the most expensive shirt you could buy in my local Walmart. Twelve dollars. $12 was the most expensive. It might have been $15. I think it was $15. You couldn't find a shirt in Walmart for more than $15. Now, that shirt was probably made for $3 or $4. And I don't know how long the shirt would last, but I, I can guarantee you that when you buy a $15 shirt at Walmart, it's not going to last as long as a $100 shirt. And, and because of that, a $100 shirt... Could, let's say it lasts three, four, five years. The $15 shirt might only last six months. And so you got to go out and buy another one and, and another one. And at the end of the day, it might come out even. In other words, the dollar value of shirts, if I bought five shirts over, over basically $100 shirts but bought five of them as opposed to buying one $100 shirt, then in terms of the economic measure, it's the same in terms of the value to output. But in terms of the resources taken from the earth and expended and used up, the cheaper shirts actually use more resources. And so one of the things when we talk about the economy growing, what's so critical is we can grow the economy and by producing better and better output. We don't have to because it's, it's based on the value of the output, the quality of the output, not how many things are made. Here's a question. How does the economy grow? Let's pretend everyone is employed. So anyone that wants a job is employed. Everybody's working hard, producing all kinds of stuff. They're, they're producing food. They're producing houses. They're producing handicrafts, handkerchiefs. Backpacks, such as in Cheats and Eats. Everybody's working really hard. We're at 100% capacity, maximum amount of output. How, so, and, and if the government measured how much output was made that quarter, and we, we flat out made as much stuff as we could, we had the capability of producing. How would the economy grow the next period so you could actually get 
the economy, more output, so that it would increase. There's only two ways. One, somehow we could get more workers, but if everybody's working, how would you do that? The only way would be if, if a child had grown up and, and could enter into the workforce. In other words, the economy increases over the long term if the population increases, because now you have more workers producing output. That's the one way. The second way the economy grows in the long term is if businesses and individuals become more efficient at producing output. For example, back to my example when I was, if I made suits, if I could make one suit a month, $1,000 suit, that would be my output. But if the next month I got better at making that $1,000 suit, the quality was the same, but I just got faster at sewing, then, then the output would have increased if I could make two suits in a month. So the, the number of workers didn't increase, just me, but I became more efficient. My productivity increased. And those are the two ways the economy grows over the long term. Population increases or, and productivity increases. Now, over the short term, though, the economy fluctuates. In the first quarter, for example, the U.S., the economy contracted. Why is that? Well, because we're not at 100% capacity. There is always slack within the economy. We do not have 100% employment. There, there are those that want to work that can't find jobs. And, and so we have the capacity to produce goods and services at a certain level, but we're well below that. And, and businesses decide how much output they're going to produce based on whether they can sell it or not, just like in our Chichen Itza example. The, the family that makes backpacks will only produce what they think they were going to sell. And so they, they look f- to the future. And so that's why you have what's called animal spirits. And, and what animal spirits are, it's, it's the human drama, the human emotion, the, the, this idea that, well, pe- frankly, humans get excited and they don't. In other words, they think things are going well, and so they're going to produce more output. They're going to work harder. Or they get, they get fearful, and so they produce less output. And that's what causes fluctuations in the economy. It's these animal spirits. If In, in the Chichen Itza example, if for whatever reason the vendors felt like nobody wanted to go to Chichen Itza anymore, and they saw that the, the number of visitors there and just visitors just weren't interested in buying, they might produce less output. And so their Chichen Itza economy would shrink. And that, that's what happens from quarter to quarter. The amount of output produced, whether the economy is growing or not, fluctuates based on these animal spirits. And, and that impacts humans because in, in the sense that we're individuals, they're suffering there. If, if companies believe for whatever reason that, that they're not going to be able to sell their output, then they start laying off workers. And, and, that, and that causes suffering. And so in, in an ideal world, the economy is growing at a steady pace. Output is increasing because population is increasing, because individuals are getting more productive, and that there's the people with jobs to be able to purchase that output. And you kind of have this smooth cycle as populations increase and as businesses become more productive.
Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com david. That's linkedin.com david to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. There's a third element, though, that very much impacts the growth of the economy, and it's a wild card. It's debt. Debt influences the amount that individuals are able to buy. If I can borrow money, I can buy a lot more output this month than if I use my credit card and go out and and charge up $10,000 and go out and buy a bunch of suits and a bunch of backpacks, then that spawns businesses that might think, wow, gee, the economy's going well. Look at all the things we're, we're selling. And so they might increase their output, not realizing that there's a false sense of security because the output or the, the, the amount of output being sold is because individuals are borrowing money. When you borrow money, you es- essentially accelerate your purchasing power in the future to today because eventually you have to pay off that debt and reduce the amount of output you can buy six months, a year, two years from now because you have to to pay the debt back. And, And debt then starts to influence with these animal spirits because businesses can't always tell how much of this demand for the output is real based on current incomes, and how much is based on borrowing. When you look at what happened leading up to the Great Recession, in the Great Global Recession in 2008, 
it was created, you had this boom based on a significant increase in debt. Households, for example, on average since 1950 have have had about, you have what's called the total income, disposable income, which you look at the entire U.S., how much income have individuals, the private had, households have, less what they spent in taxes. So they, they earn all this money, then they spend, they spend their taxes. What's left is called disposable income. And when you compare that level of disposable income to the amount of private or household debt in the economy, since 1950, it's been 75%. Now, you had a huge ramp up in debt leading up to 2008. It got The average has been 75%. It got up to 129% debt relative to the amount of disposable income. And so they actually there was more debt than the total income. That was an acceleration of all this purchasing power to, to, to purchase output. All these houses being made and individuals taking, out, taking, individuals taking out equity lines to go out and take vacations and buy new cars, buy furniture for those houses. We had this huge boom that was stimulated by all this borrowing until something happened. And, and individuals got fearful and they decided, well, maybe I don't want to buy a new house. And then the, the value of houses started falling and then people couldn't borrow on their equity line. And then businesses decided that they didn't want to produce as many houses and as much furniture and other output because they didn't think it could be sold. And so you had a contraction. When the economy contracts for several quarters in a row, when the amount of output decreases, the output of goods produced, the outputs of services rendered, that leads to a recession. And recessions can be very dangerous because they can result in downward economic spirals because of this, this, these animal spirits. If people get very, very fearful, then businesses start to produce less, and which means that if they're producing less output, they have less workers that are employed, which means these workers have less income and less ability to produce or less ability to buy that output. And so you can have this downward economic spiral. And that's what a recession is. And, and recessions are a concern because during recessions, corporate profits collapse. They just fall. In, in the 2008 recession, in the U.S., companies with the S&P 500, their earnings fell 80%. In the 2001 recession, earnings fell 46%. When corporate earnings fall, the stock market falls. And the, on average, during a recession, the stock market falls about 30%. And that's a lot of losses that occur. And, and so the economy, whether it's growing or not, is important because it impacts the, in, the return on your investment. So recessions cause market losses, which impacts your investment portfolio, your 401k. Now, is that why you should care about the economy? Well, that's certainly one aspect. And one outstanding question that we won't get to today, we'll discuss next time is, can the economy be predicted so that you can avoid suffering those losses due to the slowdown in the economy, which causes a drop in corporate profits, which causes the stock market to fall, at least in anticipation of that. And we'll, we'll discuss that in the next episode. 
What I want to end today with, though, is this is why the economy matters. We are constantly sending signals to businesses based on what we buy. They're producing output in terms of goods and services. We as consumers are sending them signals. We send them in terms of what we buy. If we want to buy cheap, cheap stuff at the dollar store, that's a signal. If we want to buy higher quality things and buy less of them but higher quality, the impact on the economy is the same in terms of the output being the value of the output sold and the value produced, but it's the signal we're sending. And, and that's where it's key. We need to, to purchase things selectively that are a value that uh, are sustainable in terms of the economy and that send the right signals. The other signal that we're sending is when we borrow money to purchase things, that accelerates our spending. Now it sends false signals to businesses. The only time we should borrow, let's putting a house aside, except for maybe a house, maybe a car, big ticket items, but only other borrowing we should do and I, I firmly believe that is borrowing where we are increasing our personal productivity in the future. So borrowing for education. If I'm going to be able to produce more output or be more efficient, borrowing makes sense. If I'm a business and if I borrow so I can be more efficient and be more productive, that makes sense. When we're borrowing just to accelerate future purchases because we want something today instead of waiting till we earn the money, that send us false signals to businesses, and that's one reason we have fluctuations in the economy. That's all for today. This was episode six, Why the Economy Even Matters, Should You Care? You can get my insider's guide to money for the rest of us. So ahead of the podcast release, you can find out whether you want to listen to it or not. I'll put in those show notes, and I'll put in things that, that didn't quite make it into the podcast. You can sign up for the insider's guide at Money for the rest of us.net. And if you have a question on anything I've discussed or something you'd like to discuss in the future, you can email me at jd at jdavidstein.com. As of this episode, this podcast is available on Apple iTunes, so you can subscribe there. Please leave a review if you would. That would be wonderful. And, and finally, as I always, I need to, I need to clarify this. I used to be an investment advisor and compliance department was always on top of me to make sure that we put in the disclosures. I'm no longer an investment advisor, but it's important to recognize that what I've shared today is for general education. I've not given you specific investment advice. I've not considered your risk profile. And because of that, you need to recognize that I'm not promising future returns. I'm not predicting what's going to happen to your portfolio. I just want to educate you so that you can understand how the economy works. And why do I want to do that? Well, there was a recent study that came out where these, these academics realized that individuals that had better financial knowledge actually earned more on their 401k portfolio or their expected return on the 401k portfolio was about 1.5% one, one higher than those that didn't really know how the economy worked or know anything about investing. That's why you need knowledge. That's why I share it. I'm glad you could join me today. And next time we'll go with episode seven. Thanks.